Brought to you by Trinity School for Ministry, an evangelical seminary in the Anglican tradition. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Trinity School for Ministry podcast. This week we have another archived sermon for you that was given in 1994 by Michael Green. Michael Green was a British theologian, an Anglican priest, and the author of more than 50 books. His work focused around the apologetics and evangelism. We hope you enjoy. Lord, may thy word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths tonight. Amen. Well, good evening, everybody. I feel very honored to be with you tonight, uh, all the way from Oxford University in England, where we're just starting our fall term. I first met this college when it had just begun as an act of outrageous faith in a couple of rooms in a borrowed building. Bishop Alf Stanway had asked me to give some lectures and I shall never forget the zeal of the handful of students in that small room. There was a blackboard, I think it was a green board actually, and on it was written something like this. Praise the Lord, he's faithful, we have enough money for food for this coming week. That is your heritage at Trinity. Your heritage of faith. And the tiny acorn of Trinity in those days has now grown into this large and flourishing tree. But how does Acts chapter 4 relate to all this? Well, the first disciples, like those first students at Trinity, were a tiny minority. They were being harassed by the ecclesiastical authorities, just as Trinity was. Indeed, the events of the past couple of weeks show how ruthlessly ecclesiastical authorities can pursue godly men. And none of those first students knew if they would ever get a job. I know nothing much has changed. (laughs) Even now, the vast majority of dioceses will not send students to this college, though somewhat ironically, and dare I say it hypocritically, many of them will receive those students at the end of the process. Yes, Trinity, like the early Christian movement, was born in controversy. Why start a conservative college when liberal ones were closing? But why were the Sadducees so very angry about all this? What was so troubling about a few men proclaiming that in Jesus there is resurrection from the dead? Wouldn't it be great to know that God was alive and well and active in the community through his chosen Messiah? Answer, not if you were the ones who were already in power. Particularly if you were those who had rejected and condemned the Messiah. And not if you were in charge of the central institution that regulated God's worship and administered his law. This new movement, small as it might appear to be for the moment, could well grow into a major threat to the stability of the temple, the sacrificial system, and the authorities. The Sadducean leaders of Israel, who were made up of the country's priestly families 
and wealthy aristocracy exercised all the power socially, economically and politically in those days. It was with the high priest and his colleagues that the Romans would do business. After all, it was they who had the troops and the temple police. They had the whip hand over the people. They called the shots. So when a dynamic new initiative emerged, clearly not under their authority, they were not best pleased. The parallels with today's situation are all too obvious. There was another reason for the uh, concern of the religious authorities at this tiny but vibrant new movement. They were preaching the resurrection of Jesus. Nowadays, people don't regard this as a cause for alarm. Um, many people today simply disbelieve it and mock it. But it was very different then. Resurrection was a radical, dangerous doctrine. You see, the Jews, uh, who practically all believed in it, uh, except the Sadducees, associated um, the resurrection with the last days. The time when God would intervene, would raise the dead, restore all things, and put the world to rights. That's resurrection time. And that was in the air in the early days of the first century AD. So if the preaching of Jesus risen from the dead was true, this was a massive threat to the authorities. Not just because they had condemned Jesus and his resurrection represented God's vindication of him as Israel's Messiah, but also because his resurrection might well prove to be the first installment of resurrection in general. The final break-in of God's goodness and justice. And those in power, where would they be then? They were quite right to suspect that if God did so drastic a thing as raising Jesus from the grave, they could hardly guarantee that they would stay in power in the new world order which God is going to make. So what made them angry wasn't just Peter's announcement that God had raised Jesus from the dead. It was an even bigger thing. Peter was preaching through Jesus the resurrection of the dead. In other words, the possibility that this might be the start and the sign of God's eventual restoration of everything. What Peter, in the previous chapter, chapter 3, had called the time of universal restoration that God announced long ago through his holy prophets. Now that was very bad news for the Sadducees. But it was very good news for the common people. And we're told that 5,000 of them came to faith on the spot. We must notice something else that's very significant if we're going to understand this encounter. The authorities were keen to know in what name or by what power the apostles had healed this crippled man. They'd asked Jesus much the same question when they were confronted by his healings. Was this magic? 
Was it Beelzebub's power? Were Peter and John the sort of people of whom Deuteronomy 13 warned who could be leading Israel astray? And just as Jesus answered that accusation by referring to the work of the Holy Spirit through him, so Peter here, we are told, is filled afresh with the Holy Spirit and boldly asserts <coughs> that the name in question and the power in question is that of Jesus, the Messiah, from Nazareth. The one they had condemned was the one who did the healing. The name of Jesus was already a sign of contradiction. And then... Peter makes a remarkable claim. He uses Psalm 118 that we've sung tonight, just as Jesus had done before him in debate with the religious authorities. It was a psalm that became very precious to the early church because it was, in a way, the charter of their very existence. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you, the builders, it has become the cornerstone. What a brave thing to claim. It would be hard to say anything more subversive to leaders of the establishment. When builders are looking for ordinary stones to build a house, they naturally reject one with an odd shape because it's not going to fit. But they may then find when they get to the top of the building that the one with the strange angles is just the one they want. How grateful the first Christians must have been for a verse like that, one their master had used to explain his own position. But of course, it carried with it the implication of a new temple being built with Jesus as its cornerstone. And this spiritual temple, which is a major New Testament theme, is not made up of stones. It's made of people. People who are built into Jesus and so become a community that would replace the current temple, which of course happened drastically in AD 70. And so the apostles, confident of the strength of that cornerstone, have their eyes on helping to build that new temple. And they have no fear of the leaders of the decadent institution before whom they stand arraigned. As a matter of fact, that whole psalm would really have lifted their hearts as it can lift ours tonight. It speaks repeatedly of deep gratitude to the Lord whose love endures forever. And Trinity has tasted deeply of that love which endures forever. The psalm reminds us of times when we have cried to the Lord in our need and our anguish and he has answered by setting us free. Trinity knows a lot about answered prayer from a position of great need and anguish. The psalm goes on to assure us, as Trinity has experienced time after time, that it is better to trust in the Lord than to trust in mortals or in any human princes. And that is just the word 
that our church needs to nerve us in its mission. It is just the word that Justin needs. It is the word that Bishop Bob needs. It is better to trust in the Lord than to trust in any human princes. The Lord is with me, cries the psalmist. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? That is a word of enormous encouragement to you all as you launch out into the new chapter of Trinity's life. Not least, it's an encouragement to your dean. You at Trinity know, as the psalmist knew, God's life-giving power. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. You know more fully than he could ever have imagined that the stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Today, more than even in the psalmist's experience, we can say, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Okay, shall we say it? This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. No wonder, no wonder Psalm 118 is quoted so much by the first Christians. I want to conclude with four questions prompted by this fascinating passage in Acts 4. First, who are you? How do you who are ordinands see yourselves? Gifted academics? Good sportsmen and sportswomen? Teachers? Business people perhaps? I hope you see yourself as these apostles did as ordinary men and women. Verse 13. Ordinary, yes, in one sense, but extraordinary. Why? Because they had spent so much time in the company of Jesus and it showed, it shone out from them. This is the secret which runs, rings round book learning, valuable though that is. You see, spending time with Jesus is the key to holiness. And holiness is not something that can be imitated. The real thing shines through. And the top need at Trinity, it seems to me, is not churchmanship, not academics, not even orthodoxy, but the holiness, the love, the winsome attractiveness and courage which comes from spending time in the company of Jesus. They took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And so I say to you that your devotional life is a must. And many clergy have first diminished it and then abandoned it. And in losing it, they have lost their impact because nobody is struck anymore by the silent winsomeness of Jesus through their lives. Who are you? Second question, what do you represent? Theological seminaries love labelling people and putting them in boxes. You don't have to meet with them then, you pop them in the box. <laughs> so, who do you represent? The Anglo-Catholics or the Evangelicals? The Traditionalists or the Revisionists? The Episcopal Church or the Anglicans? Where do you stand? 
Well, I hope you will stand with those apostles who were constrained to tell the establishment that a new day had dawned, that a new temple was being built with living stones on the foundation of Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. That's the place to stand. God seems to be doing a new thing these days in renewal, even realignment, across denominations and within them. Let's remember, before we get too caught up in this, that denominations and parties are no part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are not themselves stones in the new temple. I hope you will continue in this college to train men and women for orthodox ministry within the Episcopal Church, for the growing Anglican diaspora, and for those who belong to neither. The new temple consists of them all and needs them all. There will be no denominations in heaven. We might as well get some practice in here and now. Who are you? What do you represent? Thirdly, what is your passion? It's all too easy in a seminary to debate ad nauseam the finer points of theology and to neglect the central fact that out there there are loads of people dying of hunger and you have the bread of life. The apostles kept this central. They were passionate about mission and evangelism. Look at their clear and challenging statement in chapter 4, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. That is the spark which lit this college at its outset and will, I pray, always blaze up in the hearts of its members. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. I wonder if you believe that. If so, it will infuse and inflame your whole ministry. If not, you may well gradually cease to reach out to the unchurched because, after all, we're all going the same way and so it's not important. This is an incredibly strong statement. All the more so because two different Greek words are used for the word other, which appears twice in the verse. Peter is saying that there is no additional way of salvation. He uses the word alos. No Jesus and. And he's also saying that there is no alternative way of salvation. He uses the word heteros. No Krishna, no Muhammad as the way to salvation. Now that is very tough. That is the height of political incorrectness. If you maintain that, you will find fierce opposition to it in the church, or in much of the church, which is so inclusive without the need for transformation that Jesus becomes almost unnecessary 
and faith in him becomes an optional extra. And of course it's no less unacceptable in society all around us. For the secularists have become the high priests of their cherished temple of modernist thought. In it there can be no mention of a saviour, for we need none, nor of resurrection, because it's incredible. If you're going to confront that attitude, so prevalent in church and society, you are going to need competent apologetics and passionate commitment to evangelism. I have just been preaching the gospel in Cape Town. I have seen remarkable response to the gospel at address after address after address. This can be done. Go for it. <laughs> Fourthly, how are you going to cope? Christian ministry is hard. It's unpopular and it's exhausting. It's so sad to see, as I have sometimes seen, clergy just counting the days to retirement. <laughs> or going through the ecclesiastical motions without any expectation that anything could happen. But these apostles were on tiptoe to see what God was up to and what he would need them into next. Remember, these are the same men who locked themselves in terror into an upper room for fear of the Jewish establishment. Yet here they are now taking on that establishment with passion, with clarity and with courage. How come? They certainly didn't have the resources in themselves. But we specifically read that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit to break down the opposition that faced him. He needed to be filled afresh with the Holy Spirit. Although he'd been filled at the day of Pentecost, before he undertook so dangerous a project as confronting the leadership of his country. And we need that same Holy Spirit to break down, first of all, our own independence, to illuminate our minds, to fill our hearts with divine love, to empower us to attempt great things for God. I believe that Holy Trinity is probably the most important resource for producing Anglican clergy in America. I know your new dean and president is a man strong in the Holy Spirit and passionate for mission. Gather around him, support him, faculty and students alike. Learn from him, learn with him, and take to heart from St. Peter the need to be filled constantly with the Holy Spirit of Jesus if you hope to accomplish anything for him, you can do it. I am confident that you will. Let us pray. Lord, continue your rich blessing on Trinity, its board, its faculty, its staff, its students, and its supporters. In particular tonight, 
We pray for its dean. Fill them all afresh with your gracious Holy Spirit as you filled St. Peter long ago. Give them courage to face opposition, clarity and grace in proclaiming the gospel and the skills to become wise master builders in that new temple of which Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. We ask it in his name. Amen. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode of TSMcast, recorded and produced by Trinity School for Ministry, an evangelical seminary in the Anglican tradition based in Ambridge, Pennsylvania since 1976. Trinity has produced more than 2,000 alumni to plant, grow, and renew churches around the world that make disciples for Jesus Christ. If this episode has helped to deepen your knowledge of the scriptures or strengthen your walk with the Lord, we hope that you'll spread the word and share this publication with others. Also, be sure to visit us online at tsm.edu, where you can explore admissions opportunities, sign up for our e-newsletter, read articles from our Seed and Harvest magazine, or make an online gift to our Trinity Fund in support of student and faculty excellence. Until our next episode, may the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ fill your hearts and lives with joy. Thanks again from all of us at Trinity School for Ministry, and God bless.